And there, in bold relief, like a clear painting, appeared a most imposing scene. Innumerable peaks, black and sharp, rose grandly into the dark blue sky. Their bases set in solid white, their sides streaked and splashed with snow, like ocean rocks with foam. And from every summit, all free and unconfused, was streaming a beautiful silky silvery banner, from half a mile to a mile in length, slender at the point of attachment, then widening gradually as it extended from the peak until it was about 1,000 or 1,500 feet in breadth, as near as I could estimate. So that's a quote from The Snow, which is an essay by John Muir in the book Wilderness Essays. That's going to be our subject for today, uh, for this episode of Reading Rebellion. As you may know, if you've listened to a few episodes, I'm Arik, and today I'm joined by a very special guest. Uh, I am Margaret. Um, I am Arik's lady. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, um, I too have read John Muir essays today. I'm excited to talk about things. Yeah, thanks for joining us. It'll be Um, a pretty, it'll be, I think it'll be interesting to listen to our dynamic versus the dynamic previously in other episodes of this podcast. Just because I'm far less polished. You, you're just real. Just raw and uncut. <laughs> Straight from the dome. Straight from half dome. Hey. Straight from half dome. All right. So that quote was from an essay called The Snow. Um, and this essay is basically about... Um, Well, it's about the snow um, and how it falls on the High Sierra, and in particular, um, the Yosemite Valley and the peaks around that. Um, So for those who don't know, um, it's probably helpful to give a little background on who John Muir is. Um, So John Muir was a Scottish-American conservationist, naturalist, um, and he's kind of hailed as... Um, this seminal figure in American conservation and in global conservation because of the work he did in the late 1800s to um, basically advocate for the preservation of natural spaces. Um, he spurred, um, he was the father at, um, of the Sierra Club and was uh, one of the main characters who brought um, national parks to be anything at all um i think he he started the preservationist um movement which kind of looked at nature um in a way that wasn't the utilitarian view is what was pretty popular and normal of when he when john muir was writing his essays and when he was alive um that the view of nature was utilitarian in that you know like we go out to nature to hunt or we go out to get something you know uh lumber stuff like that um and instead he looked at it more of uh we need to kind of keep this pristine we shouldn't just be like hunting we should kind of create this space where we don't utilize the resources necessarily we just keep it preserved right um but actually, that brings in um, my thing that I would kind of like to say before we get super into 
a lot of these things is that um, I think it's very important to point out that with John Muir's preservationist movement and how he kind of wanted things to be untouched, um, he very much disregarded the fact that Native people have been using and living in the land in a way that also preserved the land for thousands of years. And that he was not the spearhead, really, of that thought and that movement. It was just um, whitewash, so to speak, ideals of him. However, I do think that his writing and that um, his movement to preserve at the time was incredibly important um, and a really, really important like part of getting national parks so that we could save the space, you know? Mm -hmm. um, I think that, um, yeah, yeah, I mean, he obviously didn't like speak on or um, put importance in that Native peoples had lived on the land that he wrote about and pretty much every single essay that he ever wrote, especially when it comes to Yosemite and Yosemite Valley. And, um, you know, um, you kind of talks like how people had never used the land, um, but people had been living there and utilizing the land and shaping the landscape for thousands of years. Um, yeah. 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 No, I think it's, I think it's important to talk about, I think it's important to any discussion really about conservation in the United States um, to discuss this idea that, you know, not all, but the vast majority of native tribes that lived on these lands, um, had developed systems for living much more in harmony with the land and not making as destructive use and extractative. I don't know if that's a word, but basically their way of living and, um, you know, economy, if you will, was not one based on extraction and exploitation of resources. Um, in most cases, there were a couple of tribes in the Southwest. Um, I forgot the name of one, but where they basically did do um, the over over farming, over cultivation and, and things like that. So I don't want to, um, you know, generalize all native tribes into one group. But I think it's fair to say in general, compared to, um, you know, the Western culture, the native cultures were preserving and were seeing this intrinsic value in the land and in nature much more. Um, and I totally agree with you that, I mean, it's interesting in a way because John Muir is seen as this person who came up with all of these, you know, crazy ideas about, hey, you know, the land has value for itself and, you know, it's the natural, the spirituality of nature and the beauty of it. And to your point, um, you know, native peoples have been talking about, you know, the spiritual importance of Yosemite Valley for thousands of years. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, some of the things I read, you know, it, and many of his descriptions of these lands, he kind of even talks about it as being completely untouched, you know, um, when it isn't untouched land. There have been people there for a long time. Um, and I think the biggest knock on John Muir is not in any of the essays that we read today, but um, he has pretty nasty and gross and dismissive language describing the native peoples that he interacted with in the areas. Um, 
But I think it's also, like, honestly, within the historical context, John Muir was born in 1838. Um, He was born into a world where slavery was normal and accepted. Um, So, you know, it's kind of... I think it's important to note that he had some gross ideals ideals of Native peoples, but it's also, like, was truly just the time that he lived in as a white man. Yeah, um, yeah, you know? totally. It's important to consider him in, in the context of his time, and it's important to ha- know that this idea, like, he wasn't, you know, particularly vehement in his hatred of Native peoples, compared to your average person in 1838, but that says very, very little about what his actual views were. Uh, yes, exactly. I think um, I think my biggest thing that I like to see and would kind of like to put out there really um, is that all of, I think pretty much all of the names that he uses for all of these places, um, even at the time, are, you know, they're obviously the, the white names of these places. The native peoples had names for all of these places before that, um, that I think are important, but also like, to be honest, I can't remember, like he lists like 12 different valleys, you know, I can't remember the native names for all 12 of those places. Maybe if I were a different person, I can't even remember the American names for, or the, you know, the English names for yeah, all of those. Exactly. Valleys. Yeah. Like I barely know like <laughs> what we call them today, let alone like what native peoples called them. But I do still think like that being said, I think it's important to recognize that that's not their original name, I guess. Um, I just think that there's importance in that heritage. For sure. And I think on another note, to be fair to John Muir with some of this, like, you know, like not realizing like all of the work the natives did for the land, um, people continue to do that today, uh, you know, like 150 years later. So he, almost 200 years later, he did his best um, at the time. He definitely had some obviously outdated views, but um, it's obvious to us now. Yeah, I think the important thing for me at least is that, you know, what John Muir did is he took these ideas of, of preservation and conservation and the value of nature and he was he played a critical figure critical role in making those ideas kind of uh, mainstream, if you will, in, and bringing it to the American public at large, which was critical in the establishing establishment of the national parks, as you said. And like to me, the national parks are one of the great treasures that we have access to in America and and in this world. I mean, nothing, you know, fills my heart with pride to live in the U.S. and to be a part of this country in some fashion, like being in our national parks, whether it's, you know, Rocky Mountain, whether it's Yosemite, whether it's Joshua Tree, Um, And that's a legacy that I think is super important. And, you know, in the West, we have a lot of public lands now that have been preserved. And I don't think we get there without figures like John Muir Um, and, you know, his influence on Teddy Roosevelt in the establishment of those parks is is super important to me personally on, on a personal level. And I think also from a conservation perspective. Yeah, and for me as well, honestly, like my, the SJW, like the Native peoples are important, which is really important to me. It's also like, I very firmly believe that without someone like John Muir, 
writing these essays for the masses, we would never have these things. And like, honestly, we would have disgraced the native peoples even more than we already have. So all that SGW shit being said, (laughs) I completely think that Jamnir is a very important figure in conservation. Yeah. Um, Of course, you know, like hindsight is 2020. The world's a very different place now. Right. But again, there are plenty of people now who don't, you know, take the native people's ideals of land into consideration. Uh, Honestly, he's not too far off. It's all good. He did a lot of good work. Well, chill dude. I, I don't think it's SJW <laughs> shit, to be honest. Like I think it's I think it's an important perspective and I think also one thing that colors I would imagine your thoughts on this and mine as well is like having studied to some degree, you know, I had a sustainability minor, you have a conservation biology degree, having been a part of the Western education on conservation, um, the vast majority of it does not consider you know the native perspectives and the native influence on the land um you know i was lucky to have a couple of classes where we did dive into that um but there the vast majority of it is not and we put these people on uh pedestals um and in some cases for very good reasons right like john muir like aldo leopold like humboldt um but we don't talk about the other side of it and the other not just individuals but entire cultures um, where we can draw inspiration from in terms of how to preserve these lands and why we should preserve these lands. So, uh, yeah, I think it's an important discussion for sure. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I just don't want to, um, you know, always be... Because of our educational background, it's very dismissive of those entire cultures, and I just want to be mindful of that. They yeah. were important, and they aren't taught. But... That being said, let's dig into John Muir. <laughs> All right, sounds yeah. good. So, The Snow. I guess, what was your overall kind of take on this essay? Um, what did you take away from it, and what did you think about it? So, my take on the essay, um, good or bad first? Do you want, like, my Let's hear the happy? good first. Okay, so I think that he writes very beautifully you know um he has really it's so incredibly descriptive the way that he writes um it's like he's describing really the whole essay is him describing the scene of fresh fallen snow uh, or just you know the snowfall yearly in yosemite valley Mm -hmm. um in yosemite the sierras itself um and he just describes in such detail right um like, he talks about, like, you know, how the snow looks on, like, the individual needles of the, the, the um, coniferous trees, mm-hmm. you know, which is incredible. However, the bad of that, I think sometimes he does it to a fault. <laughs> <laughs> like, he describes it for so long and with such all of the tiny details that I just kind of get lost in it. And I'm like, okay, dude, what were you we even talking about? Like... <laughs> You know, you're talking about how the wind blows the tiny sediments <laughs> so long, for so long, that I just kind of am like, all right, all right, all right. Kind of made me think, it's like, you know, like, was this man alone, you know? Like, did he really only have, like, the woods, his words? 
that's it? Yes, I think the answer is yes. <laughs> so the way he didn't go insane was just by writing for hours about like the sediments and the 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 way it goes and, and all of that stuff. I guess, but like you know, get a dog, bro. <laughs> <laughs> Try some knitting or something. You know. Um, but that be yeah, it's still really good writing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would totally agree with that. Um, you know, the the quality of his writing and and the colorfulness is definitely very exceptional. I think that's part of why he was so effective at capturing the minds and the imaginations of the American people. Um, you know, it's like that quote I read to start the podcast. Um, but even other ones, um, here's, so you were talking about the snowfall in the, in the coniferous trees. So here, let's see, every tree during the progress of gentle storms is loaded with fairy bloom at the coldest and darkest time of year, bending the branches and hushing every singing needle. But as soon as the storm is over and the sun shines, the snow at once begins to shift and settle and fall from the branches in miniature avalanches and the white forest soon becomes green again. The snow on the ground also settles and thaws every bright day and freezes at night until it becomes coarsely granulated and loses every trace of its rayed crystalline structure, and then a man may walk firmly over its frozen surface as if on ice." End quote. Um, and then he goes on to talk about the snow and the ice quite a bit after that. Yeah. Um, and a paragraph before that, you know, he, he's talking about the different kinds of snow and the sizes of the flakes. That's one thing that really struck me about this is like, this man spent a lot of time out in those woods in the winter, like many winters, you know. Did he spend many winters? He must have, is my take, because, because here's an example. So, um... Let's see, where should I start this quote? Okay, here. So, the snow is first built out from the banks in bossy, overcurling drifts, compacting and cementing until the streams are spanned. They then flow in the dark between a continuous covering across the snowy zone, which is about 30 miles wide. All the Sierra rivers and their tributaries in these high regions are thus lost every winter, as if another glacial period had come on. End quote. So... I don't think you can get to that level of like, you know, confidence and description of like the patterns of the weather across multiple winters without having spent many winters there. I mean, he could have talked to people that lived there. I That's don't know true. how much interaction he had with uh like locals, I guess, or what locals even were, you know, yeah. at this place at this time. Um, yeah, I have no idea. But I think, like, um, he, yeah, he does a very good job of, like, describing those things. He definitely spent a lot of time. But it's also interesting to think, like, he could have just spent, like, a winter. But, like, that's, like, six months if you really don't talk to anyone for, like, a hot minute, just, like, alone in a cabin writing. Yeah, that's uh, that's true. I mean, that... you have nothing to do other than notice just a shit ton of detail. Right, right. No, that's a, <laughs> that's a good point. That's a good point. Yeah. I mean, you've got no cell phone. You probably don't have a lot of books because he's probably like backpacking essentially, but yeah. like backpacking without you know like a 
three ounce water filter and a sixteen ounce tent and shit yeah, like that. Exactly. <laughs> he, he doesn't have like, you know, a packable, you know, eight hundred fill goose down uh yeah, puffy right. jacket, you yeah. know. Like socks that are designed to like have microbes in them that eat the nasty bacteria and like sweat particles so that they're just fresh for like a week. <laughs> he definitely doesn't have those. His socks just reek. but like yeah it's kind of an interesting like um did he spend a bunch of winters just sitting in the sierras or did he spend like two winters there you know yeah it's at least one i'm trying to look at this like timeline of his life but it's really detailed they're like every year they're talking about what he was doing and uh yeah. I think that that's an interesting thing that John Muir was able to bring to the masses of America, you know, is he lived a life where he was able to just kind of go and travel to these beautiful places. Um, and he also had a talent for writing, enjoyed writing and like published it. So, you know, you bring this kind of like, I don't know, like eco travel um right mm-hmm. would that be what you call it yeah to a bunch of people who cannot travel because they literally have wagons yeah they literally have wagons i mean they're essentially subsistence farmers at that time most people yeah um it's like oregon trail shit you just like die of dysentery <laughs> yeah, <that laughs> people can't really much. travel you know no, no not for fun yeah i mean the idea that he traveled for fun just like around the west was like yeah definitely unique yeah. Um, and it's interesting to think about John Muir as kind of like one of the first like eco tourists in that way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> like if if it, he was here today, he would just be go. You know, he'd probably be like a software engineer that's going and staying at like eco resorts in the Amazon rainforest and yeah, totally. taking ayahuasca tours with like some shaman. Just, like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, who is John Muir today? Is he just like a blogger? <laughs> just a travel blogger? <laughs> Yeah, basically. Or maybe a photographer. Or maybe a writer. I think, honestly, like, someone who writes like John Muir, I think you probably are still a writer. But that's a blogger. Hopefully. Yeah, that's true. He's a blogger. That's true. That's true. Um. (laughs) But I think, you know, going back to what you said about, like, what's unique about him is, you know, he was out in nature and doing these things and also writing. I mean, I I think that it kind of shows the power of the written word. Um, And in the hands of an effective author, you know, what they can do with these experiences, how they can really capture the spirit and the imagination of people and use that to, you know, really influence their way of thinking and, like, change people's minds. Um, I think it just, it seems really what he does is he uses really well-put-together words to just paint a really well-defined picture of these places that he's talking about. Um you know what that makes me think of? A uh, modern analogy, actually, to what John Muir is doing is David Attenborough and planet mm. Earth. Because what yeah. he's doing is he's just showing you the sheer beauty and the stunning, amazing world that exists out in nature, right? Yeah. Um, but in 1852, when he's first writing, or 1870, yeah. they don't have, you know, helicopters and HD cameras. Yeah, you and can't shit. sit in a tent in the Himalayas for two weeks waiting to catch a snow leopard on video. No, no, you can't. <laughs> Sadly for them. Yeah, for sure. They probably mostly just waited to hunt snow leopards to make fur coats. Yeah. 
Well, that but, wasn't John Muir. We at least can't no, blame him No, it was that. not John Muir. He didn't travel that far. Um, no, he couldn't have. I mean, maybe he could have, but it would have been pretty impressive. He couldn't have done that and traveled around, like, the West. Yeah. He would have not lived long enough. I yeah, think. yep. Uh, but either way, they were not making Planet Earth. Um, cameras were not right. good enough. But, but I think it serves the same purpose, right? And it's the yeah. same approach to, like, winning people's hearts for conservation. That's interesting. Maybe instead of a blogger, John Muir is David Attenborough. Maybe. Maybe David Attenborough is John Muir. <gasps> Reincarnated? Or John Muir didn't actually die, and it's, he's like Jimi Hendrix, and he was just living in Cuba this whole time, and then he came back as David Attenborough. Damn. Okay, so he died in 1914. <laughs> so, like... <laughs> Let's see when David Attenborough was born. Um, I'll do the... Do some do some do looking research. up. Yeah. All right. So in the meantime, while you check on that, let me let me uh, look at this. So one interesting quote that I found here as well was he was talking about when the winter ends um, and what happens, and he basically says, "Then, warned by the sky, cautious mountaineers, together with the wild sheep, deer, and most of the birds and bears, make haste to the lowlands or foothills, and borrowing marmots, mountain beavers, wood rats, and such people go into winter quarters." Some of them not again to see the light of day until the general awakening and resurrection of the spring in June or July. Um, so what I found really interesting about that was him referring to animals as such people in that time period. Because again, like this is a time where the idea of man's dominion over nature and nature being a tool given by God for man to do what he wants with it is the prevalent view. It's what everybody thinks. So even the little quirks of his language, like considering animals as people, um, I think would have an effect on the people reading it subconsciously. What is really unfortunate in that specific thing is that the things that I read about the way he spoke of natives and other essays is he called them animals. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, like, interesting choice there, John Muir. Doesn't, doesn't, uh, it didn't hold up well, you know? It was, uh, yeah, what, that's... Are, what are they? But anyway, not in this essay, so that's cool. But it is actually really cool also that he thought of the animals referred to them as peoples, because that is pretty, um, unique for sure i think there are lots of people still who don't again don't think of animals like that they yeah do still very much think of animals as like a lower being but right um okay so when was david attenborough born 1926 okay so, so 12 years of hiding in cuba the ocean air you know getting that youthful skin yeah, yeah <laughs> maybe you david know, attenborough it's... if you hear this you gotta tell us are you John Muir? <laughs> you can just send us an email. We won't tell anyone else. I promise I'm not in this for a publicity stunt. TMZ doesn't want to make an article about David Attenborough, I'll tell you that. No offense, dude. You're a cool guy. But <laughs> TMZ only wants to hear about Megan Fox. <laughs> um, so one thing I also wanted to touch in, in there, um, two things, I guess. Um, the way he spells canyons, <laughs> I want to know, like, so the way that he spells canyons, what is the name? N with a tilde. With a tilde. So, Enye is what that is? Enye in Spanish, yes. Yeah, okay. Um, 
I thought that was interesting that he spelled canyons like that. So yeah, to be clear, it's C A N Y O N is yeah. how he spells canyon. Uh huh. That is interesting. Oh, yeah, it made me wonder like, when did we start spelling canyons not like that? Yeah, it's more fun. It's a little it spicy. It's more fun. Yeah, it is spicy. Like you're saying canyon, but you know it's kind of like, ooh, it's spicy. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Um, (laughs) but that wasn't what I originally thought of saying Um, it was something I thought important to include um, just because it was cool agreed it was interesting to hear about his timelines and the amount of snow that would fall (laughs) in having been in some of these places in the recent years Um, because there's a lot less water now um like he talks about how things would take until like july you know to kind of clear up and not just be snow packed um but those places are few and far between when did we go i know it's not the sierras but the trinity alps do you remember what time of year that was i want to say it was august nope that was when we went to humboldt toyabe which was the sierras was it the beginning of the summer then? I thought it, might it was. Right in the beginning of the summer. Well, anyway, um, if we say it's the beginning of the summer, we went um, two years ago now oof, uh, to the Trinity Alps, which is east of the Sierras. Nope, nope, west of the Sierras slightly. Yeah. Um, and we backpacked there, and there was barely any snow left there when we did that at the beginning of the summer and i think it's pretty frequent that there's not any snow left in july but i could be wrong i haven't spent that much time in this year's yeah trinity was in june of uh 2020 so a year ago yeah cool year and a half ago um so well i guess one thing i'm curious about in 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 that is like the elevation i think in the sierras is much higher than in trinity can you see the book? Yes. Please do. Yeah, this time we're sharing a book, and I've been uh, monopolizing it this whole time, so Margaret hasn't been able to quote from it. That's uh, my fault. <laughs> okay, so the elevation of the Trinity Alps is about 9,000 feet um, at the highest. Okay. I don't think the Sears is that much higher. Was it 12,000? Well, at the highest, it's, uh, I mean, Mount Whitney, right, Um, is uh, the tallest mountain in the lower 48, but... How tall is Mount Whitney? Do you know off the... I want to say it's 14,494 feet. You want to say it's exactly that number? No, it is that number. Um um peaks range from 11,000 to 14,000 versus 7,000 to 9,000 in the trinity so it's about 2,000 feet on average okay Um, that's solid but i guess one thing like some of these unfortunate uh to read a quote that kind of really made me think about it was um some of these unfortunate lakelets are not clear of ice and snow until near the end of summer and here he talks about um the lakes um i guess lake lits which i don't know if there's a difference maybe it's a like a pond 
Yeah, I think it just means small lake, little lakelet. Weird. Anyway, um, kind of like a piglet, I guess. A lakelet. Anyway, um, I would be surprised if there were small lakes now in the Sierras that had snow or ice on them until the end of summer. Yeah, that, I, I would be pretty surprised by we that as floored. well. Um, yeah, it's just interesting. This, he talks about like the sheer amount of like water and ice, you know, but it's just not... I would assume there's noticeably less, but you know, you never... I don't know. Somebody knows. Yeah, someone knows. I'm trying to see if I can find something about when the snow clears out usually, but... um, I'm sure it's, you know, different every year or two. Yeah, exactly. Um, So one thing, another thing in this essay I want to talk about is when you read the snow banners, there's like a subsection of the essay. It's kind of like the second chapter of the essay called Snow Banners. Mm Mm-hmm. In reading that, were you able to understand what a snow banner looked like? At first, no, but as he described it, I sort of was able to picture it in my mind a little bit. It's interesting. I was like the opposite. I was able to picture it in my mind, but the more he described, the more my brain was like, what are you talking about? Are you talking about an avalanche right now? Basically how I imagined it was like, you have the peaks of the mountains, and then there's a really strong wind blowing. And there's these, like, little powdery snow on the cap. So it gets this, like, long band of snow, like, through the air from the peak of the mountain that looks like kind of like a banner, you know? like. Mm-hmm. So I think, because I then honestly looked up a picture of what a snow banner is. Okay. So what it is, what I understood of his um, long detail was that the snow banner, you know, it only happens when the wind comes from the north. Um, but not from the south. Uh, but it's actually when the snow goes down the mountain, kind of in streaks. Oh, interesting. You know, it's a banner that way. Um, but yeah, that was a big thing to me. Like, he had this whole section of snow banner, and he kind of talked about... I guess that goes back to, like, my critique of his writing, is that he describes so much that it almost gets lost on you. Yeah, I was trying to see if I could find a quick YouTube video or something that shows a snow banner, but... Oh, I found, like, a picture that was, like, a drawing okay. of, um, yeah, um, um, John Mears, I know. That would be cool to, to see, actually, what he was talking about, but maybe yeah. not that many people have actually read this essay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but other than that, was there anything else that you wanted to touch on in this particular essay? Um, no, I think that pretty much covers it. I guess one thing that was intriguing to me in reading that and in reading, you know, I'll touch on this in the other essay as well, is just his ability and desire to just like trumps around to a high peak in the middle of like a massive storm just to be like, hey, hey, it looks like it's going to be cool up there. Um, he does a lot of things that like, if you read about like, you know, safety precautions for backpacking or like what you should do and what you shouldn't do in the wilderness, he does a lot of shit that you shouldn't do if you want to live. But he, I mean, I guess he's just knows his way around the woods a lot better than your average, you know, 2021 backpacker does. 
<laughs> he's trying to get less bold picks for the gram, probably. <laughs> you know, he's probably not getting any picks for the gram. Yeah, true, true. He's definitely not getting any picks. I mean, this essay is his pick for the gram, basically. That's true. You can do this from a much safer distance, though. Yeah, it's true. Um, but it is it is impressive that, you know, like, the Donner Party died. I wonder when the Donner Party died. Um, but the Donner Party, like, they starved to death out there, and he's just booling in the woods all winter. Yeah. He's just like, mm, mm, mm. Well, I guess and Yosemite there. is quite a ways. It's the same mountain range, right, because it goes up to Tahoe, but the Donner Pass is, like, near Tahoe, and... Yosemite Valley is quite a ways south. Maybe it's different. Maybe it's more like accessible and less harsh. There's bigger valleys or something, but I have no idea. Maybe he went in. Um, so the Donner Party happened. Um, it was the winter of nineteen forty six to or nineteen eighteen forty six to eighteen forty seven, and um, probably they just had better um, transit by the time John Muir got there, which yeah. is like 20 years later almost. Yeah, I think. yeah, 20, 30 years. In like the late 60s, 70s. Yeah. Um, also, snow banners are totally what you were talking about in the picture um, that I looked at. It is like the the snow is blowing from the very peak. Let me see this picture. Of the, I'm trying to get it up. Oh, okay. Um, the very peak of the mountain um, to be like a lateral. Oh, yeah, thing. yeah. Oh, that's based on John Muir's painting. That that's that painting. Why, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I totally thought it was like the down the oh, mountain yeah. went because it also is in this picture. Right. That right. I found. That makes sense. Um, yeah. Yeah, I kind of thought of it like, uh, you know, in Harry Potter they have like the house banners, like the. Yeah. I mean, that's what I thought a banner was too. Right, and then the writing was talking so much about the particles of snow that it, like... Yeah, I was like, is this talking about it going down? Like... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Alright, so do you want to introduce the second essay we read today? Yes. Um, Let me... I'm trying to find a good quote. Um, This... The second essay that we read was called A Great Storm in Utah. Um, It was from his time in Utah, believe it or not, Salt Lake City, uh, because it was, his letter was dated Salt Lake City, Utah, May 19th, 1877. Utah has been blessed with one of the grandest storms I have ever beheld this side of this era. The mountains are laden with fresh snow. Wild streams are swelling and blooming adown the canyons, and out in the valley of the Jordan, a thousand rain pools are gleaming in the sun. With reference to the development of fertile storms bearing snow and rain, the greater portion of the calendar springtime of Utah has been winter. In the upper canyons of the mountains, the snow is now from five to ten feet deep or more, and most of it has fallen since March. Almost every other day during the last three weeks, small local storms have been falling on the Wastash in the Okure, which I definitely pronounce wrong, but whatever, mountains while the Jordan Valley remained dry and sun-filled. But on the afternoon of Thursday, the 17th, Ultimo, wind, rain, and snow filled the whole basin, driving wildly over valley and plain from range to range. That's an interruption. Uh, but basically, this in this essay, he describes um, a the great snowstorm that blew through on this uh, 17th um, uh, 
Yeah. It's interesting that he just says the 17th, but he doesn't say the month. He just says 17th Ultimo. Yeah, right? He It's like your thing with the canyon. He also used the word adown. I don't know if that's a real word, but... Adown the canyons. Yeah, right? Uh, but, but whatever. I think also, and maybe I'm wrong here and getting my timelines messed up, I feel like there was some forms of like writing in English that they kind of people just use words that weren't real because most people didn't know how to read so you kind of just use words but I think I'm thinking of like old like renaissance English. times basically I, I believe I, I've heard what you're talking about and it, I think it has to do with the institution of the printing press which is when mm. English spellings were more standardized or started to become standardized because um, you had to print things, you know, and not just write them. But I, I actually don't know exactly what the timeline there is. Yeah. Um, but okay. yeah, he has interesting language in there. So what's your take on this essay? Um, this essay really made me think that uh, John Muir seemed a little more fit for the short form essays i think that was really like a sweet spot in my reading <laughs> like the small number of essays of john muir that i've read um it seemed like the perfect amount of description to paint a really vivid picture yeah of the scenery without getting so into every detail so complex that it's a little bit lost yeah um that's what i thought it was also kind of like so as someone who grew up grew up in a place that it snows given a much less beautiful place with snow on it than <laughs> the scenes that he's describing just like icy midwest um it kind of gives me that like bit of nostalgia though yeah. for like oh beautiful fresh snowfall like a nice snowstorm um yeah for sure yeah. i mean i don't know like Okay, fine, yeah, compared to the mountains of Utah, you know, maybe, maybe it's not as beautiful, but, like... Yeah, but it's still kind of same vibes, you know, like, right. nice, fresh fallen snow, gorgeous. Like, it is still, there are still parts of Minnesota that were beautiful when it snowed, for sure. Right, like, I'm, I'm thinking about the time that we went to Duluth, which is a little town on Lake Superior in Minnesota, um, in the winter, and there was that big snowstorm... We almost died in our car trying to go snowshoeing. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. And then we went snowshoeing in this, like, pristine, untouched, you know, coniferous forest, and the snow was falling. And it, it reminded me of, of that, in a way. Um, yes, exactly. And I would argue that's just as beautiful as, as, you know, some of the things that John Muir is seeing in a different way. And yeah. I wouldn't want to stay there because it was very the temperature difference is really what makes it less beautiful to be honest yeah like utah it was probably never colder than 10 degrees maybe maybe it got down to the negatives maybe yeah. it did but duluth negative 20 you know at yeah. this time like yeah. i'd much rather chill in the snow woods of utah yeah um in yes. a light jacket rather than you know if I stand out here long enough, my nose will fall off. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't yeah. miss that. He doesn't talk about the, like, cold that hurts you yeah. here. It's or your just eyelids gorgeous. freezing shut or stuff right. like that. You know, like, you kind of try to, and your nose gets stuck. <laughs> it just kind of freezes together. I don't miss that. 
Um, yeah. But yeah. this very like cozy winter vibes, you know? Yeah, for sure. It's cute. For sure. It is. It is. It makes me want to go to these places in winter because we've been to both Utah and the Sierra, but only in summer um, and fall. Yeah, that was honestly something that reading these really made me think about. It's maybe one of the first times that I really felt like a like a longing to go to a winter thing uh, since I moved <laughs> out of a winter place. Maybe um, we should go with your mom next weekend up to the Sierra. Maybe. Um, I'll actually, I could ask, uh, there's a girl that I volunteer with, um, Kelly, who is going snowshoeing? No, 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 no. Cross-country skiing somewhere. Um, get the deets from her? Yeah, I'll get the deets from her. So yeah. We could do that. That'd yeah, be cool. do that. Um, but yeah, no, I felt the same. It was like the first time where I was like, oh, nice. Winter. That's yeah. pretty. Yeah, so we moved out of uh, Minnesota and out to California in 2019. And mm-hmm. um, we have refused to go home to see our family between like November and February since then. Because... February is honestly like... Yeah. I'd be hard pressed to go back in March. We yeah. got lucky last time we went in March because it was just 70 degrees. We got lucky last time when we went in October as well because it was Again, like 80 degrees. degrees. Yeah. Yeah. It was nice. We've it gotten lucky nice. with the weather, but yeah. Um, I, yeah, not a huge fan of winter. I definitely like the fact that I can choose when it's winter around me. Yeah, it's easy to love winter and winter sports when you live not in winter. You like, don't have to deal with like the everyday effects. Like there's a snowstorm, so now traffic is like extra shitty. Yeah, or just like you know going to college in minnesota and minneapolis was like kind of brutal in the winter like you it would be negative 25 degrees and you still have to walk to class <laughs> you know and it's yeah. just like at least uh, it's not like siberia i yeah. watched a youtube video of how they uh, uh, how to dress like feminine in like some one of the coldest it's like negative 72 degrees <laughs> <laughs> down in Russia. you so, know what at least it's not that how do you dress feminine like do you have like a you just have a humongous coat that's like slightly tailored at the waist <laughs> or just like a, a fur hat with like bejewels on the back that you can barely see because there's so much fluff uh, you can't use like yarn hats was what the video said because they're just not warm enough that's intense he also said things that like if you drive like your own car you have to park in garages where you kind of like the garage is either heated or you have to leave your car running all day. Yeah, otherwise your gas freezes. Yeah, Luckily, I don't miss don't that. That's another thing. I... It's just if you the only time your gas would freeze there is if you had an older car and you left it on too low of a tank, like yeah. quarter tank or less. You're in danger territory if it's below like negative twenty. Don't miss that. Yeah, Do me not neither. Miss that. Me neither. Um, I'm glad for our winter to now be like. 40 degrees yeah, I'm and like, I'm like oh, oh my, my goodness god. it's too cold outside I'm going <laughs> out there I might freeze to death it's 40 exactly yeah don't miss it um but anyway yeah <laughs> back to a great storm in Utah um so one thing I appreciate about the essay like you said is just the language and the descriptions were really beautiful and I'll read one in a second that that stuck out to me but um the other thing I appreciated about it is this idea of like loving storms uh you know and that's something that i can really relate to like i love storms snowstorms rainstorms thunderstorms um and a lot of people don't seem to like they get really alarmed by it 
And he talks about this even then. Um, so, let's see here. And also there's some... Uh, it's kind of interesting. He seemed to really not like Mormons, but... Um, Ari understands that. I have no grudges that, against the Latter Day Saints, Latter Day Saints, LSDs. the the L, the LDSs. LSDs. Okay, so let me let me quote from this book here. The oldest saints say they have never witnessed a more violent storm of this kind since the first settlement of Zion, and while the gale from the northwest with which the storm began was rocking their adobe walls, uprooting trees and darkening the streets with billows of dust and sand. Some of them seemed inclined to guess that the terrible phenomenon was one of the signs of the times of which their preachers are so constantly reminding them. The beginning of the outpouring of the treasured wrath of the Lord upon the Gentiles for, killing, for the killing of Joseph Smith. To me, it seemed a cordial outpouring of nature's love, but it is easy to differ with salt latter days and everything. Storms, wives, politics, and religion. <laughs> But my point there was not the, the hatred of the Mormons, but more that just this idea of like, you know, to me, it seemed like a cordial outpouring of nature's love. Um, and, you know, I, I really agree with that. But when you see, you know, how people respond to storms and rain and, and things of that nature, a lot of time it is this idea of like fear and we need to run away and it's it's terrible. So I thought that was an interesting thing. Um Maybe the pe- people of Utah were more aware of, like, the Donner Party than he was. Maybe. Maybe. But I think it is more of, like, <laughs> to keep going back to, like, John Muir hates Mormons. But um, I feel like more so than it is him saying that he doesn't like Mormons, it's more kind of like the... And especially go- being in Utah, in Salt Lake City, in, like, 1870s, like you're surrounded by just God-fearing people, you know? It's yeah. not just, like, a fear. It's, like, you know, kind of everyone is, like, God has smit us. Smited? Smited? Smitted. I think it's smited. Smote. Smote. I like <laughs> smote, smote the best. <laughs> like, yeah. Um, yeah, that's true. That's true. It's an interesting thing. So I think, like, you know, you and John Muir, you don't hate Mormons. You aren't against Mormons. You just, you know, sometimes it's a little much. Like, it's okay for you to wear jeans, you know? <laughs> it's really fine. <laughs> yeah, I do agree with that. Uh, one uh, Here's another really, like, just, like, weird quote that shows, like, the time that he lived in. This isn't really relevant to anything, but... I heard Brigham Young in the t- tabernacle the other day warning his people that if they did not mend their manners, angels would not come into their houses, though perchance they might be sauntering by with little else to do than chat with them. Possibly there may be Salt Lake families sufficiently pure for angel society, but I was not pleased with the reception they gave the small snow angels that God sent among them the other night. Only the children hailed them with delight. The old latter days seemed to shun them. I would like I should like to see how Mr. Young, the lake prophet, would meet such messengers. So, honestly, the crazy thing about this for me is he was just, like, roaming around and he heard overheard Brigham Young in the tabernacle, like... That's a bizarre and old-timey. <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. I think what's another thing, actually, that's interesting about that excerpt is it really makes me think, like, this man was just some fucking winter tourist who's just, like, roaming around. He's like, oh, this is, snow is beautiful this time of year. And, like, the people who actually live there are like, god damn it. Like, 
I gotta shovel this shit. <laughs> like, man, like, not not cool. They're like, am I gonna have to eat my child because I can't like, get to the nearest store if it snows too much, you know? Um, am I gonna have and especially because they don't have, like, a weather forecast. It's just, like, storming. Like, are they gonna be stuck for weeks or is it just gonna be, like, a quick little this will blow over? Maybe they do have a forecast. When, when did they start publishing the Farmer's Almanac? And does it have accurate weather forecasts? Okay, so I think that that, yeah, like, you know, are they predicting that it's going to be a snowstorm or are they going to predict, like, now they're like, oh, you'll get about 12.5.75. No, I think they're probably predicting in the Farmer's Almanac at that time, like, ah, yes, there will be quite a bit of snow this winter. Or we think it's going to be a dryish winter. That's probably the forecasting you get. Or they, like, look in the sky and they're like, clouds (laughs) clouds <laughs> it's gonna right, snow right and as like a person who lives there you probably know that like that weather forecast it could either be like a normal simple chill snowstorm or it could again freeze you in so bad that you got to eat the kid and the dog to survive <laughs> <laughs> like jerky them up and eat the rug yeah like they did and again to bring up the donner party yeah uh, you know eat the rug to what try you gotta survive. do sometimes yeah all right, so I've got one more quote for his um, kind of his way with words and how he describes these beautiful scenes. So he's talking about here basically the end of the storm and the sunrise at the end of the storm. Looking across the Jordan, the gray sagey slopes from the base of the Ochre Mountains were covered with a thick plushy cloth of gold, soft, of gold, soft and ethereal as a cloud. Not merely tinted and gilded like a rock with autumn sunshine, but deeply muffled beyond recognition. Surely nothing in heaven, nor any mansion of the Lord in all his worlds, could be more gloriously carpeted. Other portions of the plain were flushed with red and purple, and all the mountains and the clouds above them were painted in corresponding loveliness. Earth and sky, round and round the entire landscape, was one ravishing revelation of color, infinitely varied and interblended so yeah again just goes to show his way with words is really something special um and he can really evoke these scenes um and not just the scenes but like when you see something like that you know i firmly believe it like has an effect on you right you like feel it right like the glory of that sunset right is is an amazing thing um and i feel like his writing captures that in a way that very few writers do like the feeling of seeing those things interesting i guess that that for me is i don't when i read it it definitely like more so paints the picture and then um he uses a lot of the it kind of definitely paints the picture it makes this really like grand um, I guess I didn't really read it at any point and really feel the emotion evoking other than like, you know, like that bit of like nostalgia and stuff like that. Um, but he's not really talking about nostalgia. There. That's true. Um, maybe it is. But then go ahead. That's all. I think honestly that that's kind of the fun of reading things like this is you interpret it as he is evoking the emotion in you and he's evoking the feeling of seeing these things. I don't read it like that. Um, yeah, that fine. is interesting. Um, you know, it's like at the end of the day, we read the same words. Yeah. Um, I, I think what it probably is for me, you know, hearing you say that and you're right, he doesn't say anything about the feeling at all, but it's just, he does 
such a good job of evoking the picture in my mind and I've felt that feeling so many times being out in nature um, because one of the things we love to do is, you know, go out, hike, travel, and, and be in nature. Just not in the winter. Just not in the winter. Um, <laughs> when, when I read that and I picture that in my mind's eye, that's what's evoking the feeling. So it, it is really just his, how descriptive his, his language is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that that was really the beautiful thing about John Muir's writing is he is so descriptive um whether it's to a fault or not honestly whatever that's everybody's own interpretation and opinion but um he really does like an immaculate job of describing every detail and like the details of the details again like you know he talks about like the bigger picture of like how the snow looks on the trees and then he goes down to like all the way of how the snow looks blowing off of individual needles and leaves, um, which is really cool. Yeah, it's a definitely. lot of it's a lot of detail to describe. Um, yeah, paints a very vivid picture. Definitely. Yeah. Um, any closing thoughts on uh, either of these? Any points you wanted to hit? Um, I think kind of covered everything that I had thought to cover and thought of. Yeah. Same. Oh, I guess um, the only thing that we didn't uh, talk about that I have written down is um, he talks, he says ground glass in the snow essay. I had no idea what he was talking about. <laughs> I don't know what the hell that's talking about either. I, I don't know. Do you know what, do you have what like page it was on or anything or no? I'd have to look. Okay. You can take a look. Um, um, do you have closing thoughts? Other than what ground glasses? Well, I'll just do a quick recap. So this book was, um, it's a collection of essays that John Muir put together. It's just called Wilderness Essays. Um, it's by John Muir. Um, very evocative, uh, very descriptive, very skillful imagery. So um, if you're interested in, in reading about, you know, the places that John Muir was and reading his writing, you know, from the horse's mouth, so to speak, um, I recommend picking up a copy. However, if you're interested in the history and the bio, like a more biographical account of John Muir as a man and, you know, who he is, this probably isn't what you're looking for. Um, because it's, it, it is really just a collection of essays about the wilderness um and not a biography that talks about him and his his legacy and and whatnot um so i found the ground glass packet package passage passage i guess it's a package of words <laughs> um and it doesn't really okay i'll just read it here he's talking about the snow banners so i'll start from the sentence before which, with the sentence before, it, I think it also kind of exemplifies where he gets a little carried away in his descriptions. Mark, two, how grandly the banners wave as the wind is deflected against their sides, and how trimly each is attached to the very summit of its peak, like a streamer at a masthead. How smoothly and silky they are in texture, and how finely their fading fringes are penciled in the azure sky. See how dense and opaque they are at the point of attachment and how filmy and translucent towards the end so that the peaks back of them are seen dimly as though you are observing through ground glass. 
wonder if he means like ground up glass. That wouldn't make any sense. No. Yet again, observe how some of the longest belonging to the loftiest summits stream perfectly free all the way across intervening notches and passes from peak to peak, while others overlap and partly hide each other. So, uh, not to keep going after we've given these closing thoughts, but uh, <laughs> in reading this, reading again with the short form, like reading this individual passage paints a really good picture however this was like a pair like a good paragraph like many lines of page and there are like multiple more pages just describing snow banners right so it's like bruh but anyway uh does not clear up what ground glass is uh, would love to know. David <laughs> Attenborough, who's actually John Muir, if you're listening, let us know what you mean by that. Yeah, very strange. The, the peaks back of them are seen dimly as though you were looking through ground glass. Um, I tried to do a quick Google and see if there's like, you know, so, something that that actually means. But uh, Maybe it's like sea glass, you know? He just was also spending a good portion of time at the beach, but he was too, like, jacked up on tequila in Mexico to write about the beach. Yeah, maybe. Um, I looked up ground glass John Muir, and I found a copy of Snow Banners. Okay. Uh, (laughs) Um, If you are looking for a biography, um, I recommend A Passion for Nature, The Life of John Muir by Donald Worcester. Maybe we'll do that one someday, but probably not. Honestly, I would probably rather pivot to a different conservationist, maybe uh, Humboldt or, uh, or Aldo we could Leopold. Read about the um, try and find things about the native origins. That would be awesome, actually. The nature and read more about um, from their perspective. I think would be really valuable. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, if you are interested in uh, Humboldt as well, I'll throw this one out there. Um, there's a book called The Invention of Nature by Andrea Wolf. That's quite a good book. Uh, again, it's about one of these figures who, for Western thinking, was revolutionary in thinking about like nature and the value in it. Um, so, yeah. All right. So with that, um, it's been uh, a pleasure having this discussion with you today, Margaret. Thank you again for joining and uh, helping me record this podcast today while Ion is uh, out of town. Heck yeah. It's been real, bro. Uh, It's been really real. Um, Really, really real. You'll probably hear a few more of these from the two of us. Um, We have some really good ideas. Uh, Sneak peek, something to do with going undercover at timeshare presentations, but... (laughs) You. That's all I'm gonna say hold about your, that hold one. Hold your pants together for that one, yeah, folks. That's all I'm gonna say about that one. And who knows when our vision will come to fruition? Um, real quick on the app, we're still working on it. I was just in Puerto Rico for ten days with Margaret, so I haven't been writing a lot of code. But I have some time off for Christmas, so my holiday spirit will be writing uh, Swift UI code. So. Which Puerto Rico? Habichuelas, best thing. Habichuelas were amazing, especially from that tiny food truck. I forget the name. But if you're ever in Luquillo, Puerto Rico, and you need to know where to get the best habichuelas, send us, drop us a line at contact at rdmr.io, 
and I will give you the recommendations. I also have recommendations for what to do in Vieques, uh, some great beaches. So yeah, if you need travel recommendations for Puerto Rico, <laughs> contact at rdmr.io. Or if you want to talk about John Muir, Wilderness Essays, the podcast, the app, drop us a line. And whoever you are who downloaded this podcast in the Netherlands, please contact us. I, I want to know who you are. <laughs> you just want to have a convo, say hey. Yeah. Hope you're doing well. Yeah. Super sick. Thank you for listening. Listen to them. Not really me. This is my first. Well, to you now. Yeah. Look at that. My voice carries throughout the world.